You're beautiful, my Lord. You're beautiful, my Lord. You're beautiful, my Lord. You're So, Lord Jesus, you are beautiful, and I pray this morning that you would give us the courage to look at you, to, to see you well. Um, Lord, would you cause us uh, to preach your word together? In Jesus' name, amen. For the last uh, several weeks, we've been looking at a collection of Jesus stories from Matthew chapter 11 and 12. At the start of Matthew chapter 11, you may remember that John the Baptist in Herod's prison hears about Jesus' miraculous signs and doubts. And Jesus then talks about pipers piping and children dancing and a yoke that sets people free and turns labor into rest. At the end of last week's uh, text, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and the Pharisees plot to kill him. Pharisee comes from the Hebrew verb para, uh, which means to separate. Pharisee means the separate. So the separate get angry that Jesus really just isn't that separate. Then Jesus heals all his followers and appears to go to the Gentiles. Then he heals a blind mute demoniac. The separate acknowledge that fact, but they really hate that fact because you see there's no one that they're more separate from than like a blind mute demoniac. Then Jesus mentions the unforgivable sin and a really strange thing about a tree. And then in verse 38, the scribes and Pharisees demand to see a sign. Imagine that, after all of that, healing, prophecy, deliverance, they demand to see a sign, and, and it makes you wonder, who's really blind, who's really mute, who's really in control, uh, being controlled by demons? Matthew eleven thirty eight. then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign, a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. And yet Jesus had just done like a whole boatload of miracles. Maybe uh, you can't receive a sign until God gives you the ability to read the sign, until God opens the eyes of your heart. And how does God do that? He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So, so, so what is the sign of Jonah? You know, several years ago, Mel Gibson made a movie about the sign of Jonah. It was, well, definitely the most controversial film that was ever made. Some critics absolutely loved it, and other critics absolutely hated it. It was literally, uh, for everyone that saw it, it was literally a crisis. I'd like to show you a clip from one of my very favorite movies of all time, 
a Mel Gibson movie. Morgan, what's happening? Dogs are barking. Woke us up. Are you hurt? I think God did it. Did what, Morgan? That's a sign. Um, absolutely awesome movie. If you haven't seen that movie, you need to see it. I wish we could watch the whole thing, but we don't have time. The movie is called Signs. Uh, Mel Gibson plays this pastor named Graham who's lost his faith in God because of a personal crisis. He watched his wife die um, pinned to a tree by a truck. And now he must father his two children without her. His son has life-threatening asthma. His daughter is neurotic about stale water, and so she leaves glasses of water all over uh, the house. His brother is a washed-up baseball player named Merrill, who has no place else to live but with Graham. On top of everything else, he gets crop circles. I mean, you know things are tough when you get crop circles. People say that they're signs. But you see, he no longer believes in signs. One night, UFO lights appear in the sky all over the world, and as he and his brother Merrill watch the news, Merrill turns to Graham for comfort and faith, and, and Graham, the former pastor, says this, Merrill, there are all different ways you can tell that there's someone really there watching out for us. You, you see signs. Sometimes they're little ones, you think of someone, the phone rings, and they're on the phone. Sometimes they're big, like 14 lights hovering over Mexico City. Sure, there are a lot of people watching this who think this could be a bad thing, but there are a lot of people watching this who think it's a miracle, a sign of God's existence. It's all in how you look at things, Merrill. What you have to decide is, what kind of person are you? Are you the type who believes in miracles and looks for signs? Or are you the kind who just believes things happen by chance? Merrill says that he's a miracle kind of guy. Then Graham tells Merrill about his wife's last words as she died nailed to the tree by this truck. He, he says, Merrill, she told me, she told me to see. And then she said, tell Merrill to swing away. Merrill's eyes get really big. And then Graham says this. Do you know why she said that, Meryl? Because the nerve endings in her brain were firing, firing on some old memory of a baseball game. 
There is no one watching out for us, Meryl. We're all on our own. Well, the evil aliens attack, and this is how the movie ends. someone save me? Yeah, baby, someone did. How did it happen? Well, Graham remembered the words of his dying wife pinned to the tree. Then he saw, and he told his brother to swing away. Meryl swung at the water glass as left by Graham's neurotic daughter. The water burned the aliens. The poisonous gas secreted by the alien to kill Graham's son didn't, all because his lungs were closed due to asthma. The next scene shows Graham putting on his clerical collar and going back to work. So because of his wife's suffering, he lost faith and like died. And because of his wife's suffering, he gained faith and was like born again. In fact, everyone was saved because of the way his bride suffered on the tree. When he judged the tree bad and its fruit bad, he himself was like trapped in hell. But when he judged the fruit good and somehow the tree good, it was like his entire world came together and everything, everything became a sign because of the one sign, his bride's suffering on the tree. Well, it's just, it's just a movie, right? But it makes some good points. Number one, some say there are no signs and therefore there is no meaning. Some say that there are only some signs and so they spend their whole life seeking signs but don't read the signs. Some say that 
The world is full of signs. In fact, it's all signs. It's just that the eyes of our heart are blind and so we can't read the signs. Do you, do you ever ask for a sign? Do you? I do, like all the time I ask, I ask for signs. Do you ever say something like this? God, if only I had a sign, then I'd believe. God, there's so much suffering in this world. How could a good God allow such suffering? I mean, you've probably all seen those pictures. I mean, we were talking about ISIS this morning, the evil, evil pictures, picture of the, you know, the, the ISIS militant standing there in black and the man before him in orange about, about to die. You know the picture, don't you ask? God, where are you in this picture? So much suffering, and where's the sign? Matthew 12, 39, Jesus says, no sign will be given the evil and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, let's read Matthew 12, 38, sign of Jonah, in its context. Matthew 12, 13, you remember, that's what we talked about last time. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus. Next verse, verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, that's the suffering servant, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice, krisis in Greek, judgment to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings judgment to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Sounds like the Gentiles, those that the Pharisees were separated from, sounds like the Gentiles like his judgment, and it sounds like he heals Gentiles. I mean, including bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. He doesn't snuff them out, but he includes them. Verse 16, Jesus heals all that follow him. I mean, that seems like quite a sign, and yet he tells them not to tell. Why would he tell them not to tell? Maybe because people like scribes and Pharisees could not yet read the signs. You know, it, it can be dangerous to seek signs if you can't read the signs. Like this is probably not a great sign to go out seeking if, if you can't read it. You know what I mean? You just don't want to stand there for long staring at that sign. It's probably not wise just to admire this sign, uh, not knowing what the sign points to or what it means. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Adulterers seek signs of love and in the process crucify love. For they don't know what love means. Verse 21, in his name will the Gentiles hope. Next verse. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. 
Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. I think Jesus is plundering Satan's house. And he just said every house, every kingdom divided against itself will not stand. Satan may refuse to admit this, but his kingdom is only himself which really isn't a kingdom, or his kingdom is profoundly divided. I, I mean, I, I, I can tell you, demons just don't enjoy loving communion with other demons. In the Revelation, the harlot, the kings of the earth, the beast, they all hate each other, and Satan's kingdom devours itself from within. Paul writes, it's love that binds everything together. You see, there's not much love in Satan's kingdom. And so there's no endless kingdom of hell that Satan rules over as king. Satan is adversary by definition. Satan's kingdom is divided and will not stand. Is God's kingdom divided? And will it stand? You know, I'm not sure that we can even imagine an undivided kingdom. I mean, it's certainly not the kingdom of the United States, right? Just look at the Senate. It's certainly not our economy, which runs on greed and competition. It's certainly not our educational system, where we teach children to beat one another in order to advance themselves. Even at church, are, are we not constantly thinking of our own private kingdoms, which then divide us from uh, all the other kingdoms and trap us in our own lonely little selves. All creation devours itself, and, and we call it survival of the fittest. We even credit that with the creation of life. We can scarcely imagine an undivided kingdom. The great philosopher Jack Handy from Saturday Night Live wrote this. I can picture in my mind a world without war. I can picture in my mind a world without hate. And I can picture us attacking that world because they'd never expect it. <laughs> right, okay, well if the king of that world were to attack our world, what would it look like? And would we expect it? And what would be the sign of his presence and his undivided kingdom? Next verse. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Get that? Every sin will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Well, I've preached on those verses a bunch of times, and I think it's clear that the unforgivable sin is Unforgiveness. Jesus said, 
every sin will be forgiven except this sin. And he's already told us, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. The judgment you pronounce is the judgment you receive. Blaspheming the spirit of love is ignoring the voice of love saying, forgive, 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 as you have already been forgiven. See, we can take all sorts of things from God and he doesn't demand them back. But he's very clear about this. Vengeance is mine. That belongs to him. To refuse to forgive is to refuse to surrender judgment to God. And God's judgment is Christ Jesus and him crucified. Through Christ, God reconciles all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. So God's kingdom is a completely reconciled and undivided kingdom. So if you refuse to be reconciled, you judge yourself out of that kingdom and into outer darkness until you surrender judgment and vengeance to God until you forgive as you are forgiven. Unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. Sometimes I wonder if the modern Western church has institutionalized the unforgivable sin by saying that to truly believe in Jesus and his cross, one must believe that some people can never be forgiven. What a strange, bizarre, and vile thing to say that Jesus' death on the tree of ultimate suffering means eternal unforgiveness. Next verse. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. They either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Now that's a really weird thing to say, isn't it? And yet every weekend we gather at the foot of a tree and, and worship. And we eat the fruit of that tree, body broken, blood shed, bread and wine. The tree, the skulang is a picture of the knowledge of good and evil, knowledge of how we take life. It's a picture of the law and how we take life. And the tree is a picture of grace, and grace is how God gives life. Do you make the tree bad and its fruit bad? Or do you make the tree good and its fruit good? Do you take the fruit as law, or do you receive the fruit as grace. Do you delight in condemnation and separation? Or do you delight in mercy and reconciliation? The tree of ultimate suffering on which God himself chose to be pinned to the wood for the love of you presents all of us with a crisis. We judge this tree and we find out that all along this tree is judging us. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. That's our verse. 
But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's the sign of Jonah? This is the sign of Jonah. That's the sign of Jonah. Now do you understand why there was so much controversy around that film? Uh, this is the film I was talking about, by the way, at the start. Uh, the movie Signs is about signs, and, uh, and it's about this sign, but this is this. <laughs> the passion of the Christ, the sign of Jonah. We think we judge the sign and the sign judges us. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now, and when I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, John 12. The sign judges and shatters our lonely little self-centered independent kingdoms and draws us into the kingdom of God. The cross is the sign of the undivided kingdom invading our kingdoms of division and death. All other signs point to this sign, that on this day, there was no sign. That's the sign. The sign is infinite love suffering for you. All his healings reveal that he chose this. He chose to bear our infirmities. All the prophecies reveal that this was the plan from the foundation of the world. All the deliverance reveals that Jesus chose to descend into every hell in which the children of Adam find themselves. The sign is the revelation of God's heart. God is love, and he bleeds grace. Adulterers seek the signs of love and sacrifice love in the process. Love sacrifices the self for the beloved. Adultery sacrifices the beloved for the self. If a faithful lover is married to an adulterer, a heart will get crucified. And that's the sign of Jonah, the incorruptible sign of love. That's the sign of the undivided kingdom in a world of division. That's grace, the blood of the great bridegroom and we are his bride. Well, all signs point 
to this sign, and this sign gives meaning to all other signs. In the movie Signs, it turns out that the greatest sign, the sign, it happened to be the sign that Graham was most afraid uh, to look at. The sign that Graham most needed to see was the sign upon which he was most afraid to look, and that was the memory of his bride, his covenant love, dying on, on that tree. Yet when he finally hears the words of love spoken from the tree, well, that sign gives meaning to all the other signs. In fact, it gives meaning to all things. And this is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, making peace by the blood of his cross. The sign of Jonah. You know, Jonah had been sent by God uh, to preach in Nineveh to the Assyrians. That's approximately where ISIS militants make their horrifying videos today. That's where that picture comes from. Well, the Assyrians were far more barbaric than ISIS. You can investigate that if you don't believe me. Jonah flees from God and Nineveh because he worries that God will forgive the Ninevites and make them part of his undivided kingdom. Well, as you know, Jonah is thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a, a great fish as he tries to flee from God. Jonah 2.2, he descends into the belly of Sheol, also translated hell. After three days and three nights, he gets vomited out onto the beach and then travels hundreds of miles inland to Nineveh and preaches. I mean, it must have been quite a sight, right? The, the word of God in a suffering, weak, little broken body of flesh. Nineveh repents, by the way. We see, I don't believe that the sign of Jonah is simply that Jesus rose from the dead. Lazarus and others also rose from the dead and they're not the sign of Jonah. And it was not given to the evil and adulterous generation to see Jesus risen from the dead. But they all saw this. They saw him suffer on the tree. They heard him say, Father, forgive. Jesus said that the sign is the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's Hades, that's hell. I, I, I think he says three nights instead of two nights because his descent into hell began Thursday night as he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood given to you. Take, eat, drink me into you. See, when, when we suffer... God chooses to suffer in us. For God has made us part of his undivided kingdom. The sign of Jonah is the passion of the Christ. And you see, it's not just the pain of some hammer and some nails 2,000 years ago. For what did Christ suffer on that tree? Isaiah 42, my servant, the suffering servant, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings judgment to, to victory. For Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all of us all, the iniquity of us all. That means all suffering is his suffering. And the sign of Jonah is all around you. You know, the greatest argument against the existence of God is suffering. 
And yet I think the greatest argument for the existence of God is also suffering. Atheists say, I can't believe in a God of love when there's so much suffering. In other words, I can't believe in God because I believe in love. Well, what if God is love? You see, we can only judge God by assuming God, even more assuming God even within us. That is assuming love within us. So, so there, there actually may be some atheists out there with a whole lot of faith in God, for God is love. And there may be some Christians who confess faith in God and have very little faith in God, for they don't love love or trust love, they just love some signs of love about love. But, but not love. I mean, they want God's riches for, for themselves, but don't want God to forgive their enemies. They don't want God to be God. They don't want love and his undivided kingdom. Well, I was just saying, perhaps all suffering is the sign of Jonah. That is, all suffering is the sign of the undivided kingdom and its king. For when you see suffering, you see division, and you long for something, and that's communion. When you see suffering, something in you wants to suffer with the one who suffers. For something in you says, we are not divided. I think that something is love. And God is love. Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these my brothers, the suffering, the hungry, the thirsty, you do to me. Something in you recognizes Jesus in them and tells you, we are not divided. And that something in you is the very spirit of Jesus within you. And so Christ's passion in them ignites compassion in you, even creates love in you. It shatters the kingdom of self and causes you to bleed mercy. The sign of Jonah is the sufferings of the Christ. And think about it. Any other sign an adulterous heart would use to feed its own adultery and thereby imprison itself deeper uh, in its own prison uh, of self. It's prison, its own kingdom of self and death. But not so the sign of Jonah. It shatters the kingdom of self and draws us into another. What could be a greater sign of the undivided kingdom and its king than love that chooses to suffer what others suffer? and to do that within you as compassion. Well, suffering is the sign, and suffering is the judgment. Something in you wants to suffer with the suffering, for it tells you we are not divided, and something in you wants to separate from the suffering, for it tells you I am the separate. That thing is death, not compassion, but a passion, apathy, a pathos. The compassion is eternal and the very life of God. The apathy is death and must be destroyed if you're ever to live in freedom and joy. The sign of Jonah is the judgment of this world and the doorway to the undivided kingdom. And the sign of Jonah is all around you. And if you dare to see the sign, if you dare to see the sign, it makes all things new. 
So number one, don't hide from your own suffering. <laughs> we do that, don't we? Don't hide from your own suffering, but look for Jesus in the midst of your suffering. It's there I find that all my sufferings are his sufferings because we are not divided. Don't hide from your own sufferings. And number two, don't fear sufferings in others. Christ's passion, and the word means suffering, remember? Christ's passion in them creates compassion in you and testifies we are not divided. Jesus suffers in the abuse, and Jesus suffers in the abuser. I mean, I think one day we, we will just see this. It, sin is the darkest prison and deepest suffering a person can experience. Sin is separation from love, and God is love. So in Jesus, love chooses to suffer even in that place. I mean, in, in, in a place like the heart of Rabbi Saul who murdered Christians uh, and then discovered Christ within himself. Galatians 1.16, God revealed his son in me as if he was there all along suffering in Saul who became Paul as Saul participated in the stoning of, of Stephen. So he suffers in prisoners slaughtered by ISIS militants. He even suffers in the tortured souls of those very militants. And what's he doing in that picture of suffering? He's suffering and reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so when they crucified Jesus, what did he do? He cried out, Father, forgive them. In other words, we are not divided. Then he gave blood to those who took blood. That's how he conquers evil and sets us all free. So number two, don't be afraid of suffering in others. And number three, don't be afraid to suffer for others because then you become the sign of Jonah. You are the body of Christ. Happiness is just another word used to describe an undivided body. It's healthy, it's happy, it's undivided. Peace and prosperity, uh, those are words used to describe an undivided kingdom. Ecstasy is a word used to describe losing the lonely kingdom of yourself and then finding yourself in the undivided kingdom of God. Ecstasy is losing your own private little self in, in another. When you suffer with those who suffer, you participate in uniting all things in Jesus and so all things become meaningful because Jesus is the meaning and everything turns into joy. So number four, don't be afraid to suffer with those who suffer. Remembering this, what we've been talking about for three weeks, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because you see, I think if you truly suffer with those who suffer, and a lot of times we suffer as a ploy or a way to manipulate people or to get our own stuff, which really isn't suffering, that's manipulating. But if you truly suffer with those who suffer, I think that's called love. And God is love. And love bears all things. You see, the burden is love's responsibility. In other words, you weep with those who weep, but love stops the weeping. And love makes all things new. You see, love shows us the depths of his passion and then rises from the dead. 
Love turns our mourning into dancing. He turns our sorrow into joy. Do you get that? I don't know that you can even get to joy unless there's sorrow. He turns our sorrow into joy. Our joy in the undivided kingdom, the body of Christ. In one of her books, Mother Teresa wrote about this young gal that came to join her sisters of, of charity. Uh, she came from a wealthy family, a university family. The very first day uh, with her, she sent the new recruits to the home of the dying. Before they went, writes Mother Teresa, I told them, you saw the priest during mass with what love, with what delicate care he touched the body of Christ. Make sure you do the same. When you go to the home, for Jesus is there in that distressing disguise, and they went. She writes, after three hours, they came back, and one of them, the girl who had come from the university, who had seen so much, so many things, she came to my room with such a beautiful smile on her face. She said, for three hours, I have been touching the body of Christ. And I said, what did you do? What, what happened? She said, they brought a man from the street covered with maggots, and I knew, though I found it very difficult, I knew that I was touching the body of Christ. She was touching the sign of Jonah. This is the sign of Jonah. That on the night he was betrayed by us. He took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you, take and eat. And in the same manner he took the cup saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood, take and drink. This is the sign of Jonah. And now watch, because in a few minutes you will see that it's all around you. Dark cups wine, light cups juice. They are both the love of God for you, the mercy of God for you. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and live. Amen? Let's worship. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. After all that suffering, I thought I'd better show you how the movie ends. And, and the end, you understand, is eternal. The suffering is happening now, but the end is also happening now. But the end happens 
when we face our suffering. I, I mean, I was thinking about this, and I think, that's, I think this is safe to say. I think Satan derives all of his power over us through our fear of facing our sufferings with Jesus. Because you see, suffering is surrendering control. And control is our own little kingdom. And surrendering control is, well, it's death. And Satan has kept us in lifelong bondage through the fear of death. That's what scripture says. But maybe God allows suffering in this world for a time uh, that he could choose love within us and with us in time and then we could cherry that, cherish that, that choice for, for all eternity. That our God is love and we choose love with him. That's good news. You see, the cross is a door and we go to the cross, we die with him, we rise with him and we become who we truly are. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel and walk out into this world with courage. In his name, amen.